There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, fellow time travelers. Uh, I hope you're enjoying the journey so far. We've only just begun as the song says, uh, to help support this podcast uh, and get new and exclusive videos every week for a small fee, for a very modest fee, you could sign up to my Patreon site. It's full of history, commentary, a whole lot more, all sorts of things going on there every week. And uh, it's called Neil Oliver on Patreon, and I would love to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles, which is and always will be free. Cue the music. of that absence of himself and the hole that he tore in the fabric of reality by his failed efforts at Flodden, he affected the destinies of England and Scotland forever. In this podcast, we're marching to a battle that cut down a generation in one fell swoop. A Renaissance king, the great and the good, and thousands of brave foot soldiers. The old alliance drawing a nation to arms. A husband locked in mortal combat with his wife's brother. Formidable pikes, cannon fire, slaughter, and a deadly arrow to the king's face, brutal and bloody. It was a battle that broke Scotland's heart. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. Last week you gave us a grand tour around your own personal fiefdom, the majestic Stirling Castle. Where are we now? Well, we're following the biggest army that was ever led into England by a Scottish king, uh, into the the beguiling, beautiful, heartbreaking, heart-stoppingly lovely landscape of Northumberland. Uh, An experienced commander, old and toughened by years of war, came up against this Renaissance king, and the battle that ensued broke the confidence of a nation. We're at the battlefield of Flodden. This week, it's a location that you and I have have shared. You and I have both been to this place way back in the day, 
when we were making television together. It's Flodden Field in Northumberland. Amazing place. We did Two Men in a Trench. Two Men in a Trench from Flodden, the Battle of Flodden, 1513. And really, that's that was the beginning of my connection to this place. It's one of those places I instantly bracket it in my head with the battlefield of Isandlwana in South Africa, in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. And I'll tell you why. When you go to that place, Isandlwana, it's the kind of place that if you were taking their blindfold and they took the blindfold off and you looked at it, you would know that something had happened there. It has that theatrical stage set feel. Flodden, although it's completely different, obviously, it's in the soft rolling green countryside of Northumberland in the north of England. But if you look out, if you were suddenly presented with that location where the two armies, Scotland and England, clashed, even if you didn't know that that history had unfolded there, you would look at that setting as it appears today and something would suggest to you that a moment of great import had taken place there. It has that feel. And I thought that the first time I laid eyes on the location and I've felt it every time since. It seems to be haunted by the event that it witnessed. Do you think there are ghosts from the battle there? It's a difficult one, that, isn't it, Paul? I mean, once you start talking about ghosts, you immediately turn certain people off and then you turn other people on. It's an emotive word. But I definitely feel, even the rational side of me, I mean, I'm more than open to the idea of there being unseen elements, but even the rational side of me thinks that where an event has taken place of huge significance, especially something like a terrible battle where thousands of people died, I think... It's not out with the bounds of possibility for me to imagine that something of that enormity lingers and there might be a there might be a sadness there. I don't know, but I'm open to it. Flodden, the Battle of Flodden, 1513, it's one of those, it'll register, you'll ring a bell, but for most people it'll do no more than that and they would probably struggle to say exactly what it was or more importantly when it was. And what happened there? It's like Culloden, Bannockburn, Scots in particular carry these names, and I'm sure lots of people of other nationalities do too, but it has a resonance for Scots. Flodden is associated for people who are a little bit in the know as well with a lament, a piece of music called The Flowers of the Forest. I mean, everyone has heard it. You will have heard it. It's a lament that's played at military occasions, uh, funerals, it's worked into the score of films, you hear it at services of remembrance, all manner of people have recorded it. The Battle of Flodden was on the 9th of September 1513 and more than a hundred years passed before the music, The Flowers of the Forest, was composed, but the tune remembers the sadness in the aftermath of what happened at Flodden and the familiar lyrics, those were actually composed by Jean Elliot, a Scottish poet in the middle part of the 18th century. And it's been recorded by everyone. Isla St. Clair, do you remember? Do you remember Isla St. Clair from the Generation Game? <laughs> Bruce Forsyth. Well, she had a lovely voice, has a lovely voice, and she, she recorded a version of it. And um, Kenneth McKellar, another legend 
from the Scottish pantheon, Dick Gochen, another legendary folk singer. There's all, all sorts of people have recorded it. The lyrics might even be familiar to some people. I've heard them lilting at the Umilkin. Lasses are lilting before dawn of day. Now there's a moaning in Ilka Green Loaning. The flowers of the forest are all weed away. Ilka Green Loaning, that's Scots for every green lane. And the flowers of the forest are all weed away. That's the, f- the flowers of the forest are all withered away. All the lovely colour, that which made the forest beautiful, it's all withered away. And that's the remembrance of all the fallen men who were lost on the battlefield of Flodden. And so, in the same way that the song has hung around and is familiar and keeps on being played whenever something sad is being remembered, the emotion of Flodden, the battle itself, has survived. The sadness is there, even though for most people they'd likely be hard pushed to describe what it was that happened on the 9th of September 1513. We spoke last week when we were considering Stirling Castle, we spoke about King James IV of Scotland, who was a glamorous figure in Scottish history. Tall, dark and handsome. He's remembered as a Renaissance prince. He was well-read, learned, interested. He was interested in what you would call the science of his day, even though it wasn't science as we would understand it. He employed an alchemist, one of those characters that promises to turn base metal into gold, although obviously none of that ever happened while James IV was watching. And he also employed the same person to look for the fabled quintessence, the fifth element, which in the 16th century understanding of the cosmos and the natural world, there was an idea about a fifth element, which once identified and isolated would give power to whoever could wield it. So he was a fascinating character, James. He is implicated in the murder of his father, King James III. His father was killed at a battle just outside Stirling at a place called Sochiburn in 1488. The King James III was isolated and pulled off his horse and done away with. And it was rumoured ever after that it was people close to James IV who had done it. And certainly, of course, James, the son, became the king thereafter. Now, there's no clear consensus on just how much James IV was involved in the murder of his father, but he's got a murky connection to it and no mistake. And certainly ever after, he wore a silice. You know, if you've seen uh, The Da Vinci Code, <laughs> the, the baddie in The Da Vinci Code, played by Paul Bettany, he has a, a studded belt thing that he wears tight around his thigh with spikes that dig into his flesh as a punishment. Well, James IV, according to legend, wore something similar, a kind of spiked belt uh, that he wore possibly around his waist, spikes that would dig into his flesh to remind him always of the part that he'd played in the murder of his father. It's a colourful, colourful figure to say the least. In 1503, he was married to Margaret Tudor. And Margaret Tudor was the daughter of Henry VII, who we've already met, the ultimate victor of the Wars of the Roses, the first of the Tudor kings. Well, his daughter was Margaret Tudor, and in 1503, she was married off to James IV of Scotland. And the year before, Henry and James had signed a Treaty of Perpetual Peace 1502, which was supposed to guarantee that it would be an end to all the centuries of internecine warfare between Scotland and England, and the marriage was bringing together Scotland and England in this very symbolic way. But, of course, life's never that simple, and James was also, in his own right, bound by 
ties and obligations to France, and specifically the King of France, Louis XII. Now, Scots believe in and, and remember something called the Old Alliance, kind of tie of brotherhood between France and Scotland. And Scots of a certain calibre can get quite emotional about the Old Alliance with France. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, while most Scots or lots of Scots remember the Old Alliance, most French have forgotten it as the Treaty of Paris, which, which, which is a treaty that was signed, but the, the French forgot about it long since. But the Scots clung to this idea that they were bound in a ties of friendship with France. Henry VIII obviously was Henry VII's son and he succeeded his father in 1509. And in 1513, in that way of English kings, he launched an invasion of France. Because English kings were always claiming ownership of chunks of France, the whole place sometimes. Uh, and Henry, Henry VIII was just another of, this, of that sort. Uh, so he took an invasion fleet across the Channel. And because of the old alliance between Scotland and France, James, James IV, our boy, felt obliged to invade England on behalf of the French king. So he duly did. And in fact, he didn't just invade England. He took the largest Scottish army that had ever been pulled together to invade England. Tens of thousands. He was serious then? Oh, he was serious, but it was kind of in his character. He was a flamboyant figure. And it would be no surprise, knowing what we know about James IV, that if he was going to invade England, he would try and do it properly. So he rounded up thousands, tens of thousands, and there's a, there's a lovely quote from Margaret Tudor, his wife, saying that she was terribly upset and saddened. There's artworks, there's paintings of her watching him put his armour on, and she's, you know, turning her face away. The unnatural spectacle of seeing my husband arrayed in mortal combat against my brother. So she's, she's stuck in the middle. Her husband is King James IV of Scotland. Her brother is Henry VIII of England. And the two are coming together. So it was a, you know, she was terribly torn by it. So James duly invades. He crosses the border. They cross the river Tweed into England near Coldstream. Coldstream's a pretty little town, pretty little village down there. And to begin with, the invasion goes well for James. He besieges castles and, and takes them. He's also supposed to have dallied, let's say, at Ford Castle with the lady of the place. Her husband was away. But Elizabeth, Lady Heron, seems to have spent an, an inappropriate amount of time on her own with King James IV of Scotland, or so they say. So it all went peachy for James for a while. Henry VIII is in France, so he can't be there to lead the defence of his realm against Scotland. And so that's in the hands of Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey, Lieutenant General of the Army in the North, known to history as Surrey. So he moves an English force north to Northumberland to intercept King James's Scottish army on the way down. And when he gets to Northumberland, he finds the Scots dug in around a hill called Flodden. And James had brought heavy cannon with him at great expense and with great effort. I mean, you can imagine these massive brass cylinders, which were what cannon were. And these had been, you know, moved over all the miles of hard terrain and he had them dug in around the hill called Flodden, close to a village called Brankston. So cannons and gunpowder, the new technology, were just starting to be used? Yeah, yeah, de yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, it's in the early, the first century of it, really. Um, you know, by the middle of the 15th century, big guns were being arrayed against fortifications all over the world. Gunpowder 
and heavy artillery, it was there. But in Europe, it was still, relatively speaking, in its infancy. But again, because James was interested in whatever was new, he'd invested in heavy cannons, so he had those there. So Surrey, who's a tough old guy, he's in his 70s, right? A a war horse of, of great experience. So he encounters the Scots dug in around Flodden with their big guns. And quite rightly, tactically speaking, sends a messenger up to say, this is against the rules of chivalry. You know, you're a, you're a prince, a king. This isn't what you're supposed to do. If you've got any class, you'll bring your army down into an open battlefield and we'll sort this out. As gentlemen do, we'll have a square go together. So he's trying to goad him into coming down off of his fortified position. And James sort of brushes him off for a little while. So Surrey moves thousands of men to outflank James, kind of comes around behind. Which, apart from anything else, means that if James doesn't do anything about that, the English will be across his route home. They will be sat across the territory that he would need to get his army across to get back north and get back into Scotland. So when James realises what Surrey's doing and where all these English soldiers are going, he moves his thousands of men, hightails it, and occupies other high ground on Brankston Hill. The Scottish army are on one hill, the English army are on another, and the ground falls down between them into a, into a valley. And that's the setting that I was talking about at the start of this. When you stand on either of the hills and look down, it's a steep slope coming down from either hill. So the stage is now set. And you'll remember what happened. We excavated there, Paul, you and I, um, with metal detectorists. And one of the best things I ever saw come out of the ground came out of the ground at Flodden. It was a, a lead cannonball, do you remember? Yeah, of course. It was incredible. So it was. It came out of the of the soft soil of, of Brankston Hill. And we know for an absolute fact that that was where the Scottish army would have been en masse, thousands of them standing shoulder to shoulder, you know, ready for the off, ready for the battle. And we know that the English had guns of their own and they bombarded the Scottish soldiers. And we found, you and me, this, this lead, the size of a cricket ball, and frighteningly heavy, do you remember? And the thought of yeah. it, if you'd been standing in a clump of, of men and this kind of missile was being hurled in your direction, it didn't bear thinking about what kind of damage when you passed it from hand to hand and it had that terrible heft to it. And still there. I know, after... 500 years. <laughs> just waiting for And it was, remember, just a few inches under the turf. It it probably been moved about by ploughs and, and whatnot over the years. It probably moved a bit, but nonetheless, it was still out of sight until our metal detectorists found it. So I'll never forget the excitement of that. The Scots didn't put up with the bombardment for very long, and then they launched an attack. And the big problem was the technophile James IV, the interested in new technologies he was, he had armed his army with 18-foot-long wooden pikes, great big wooden spears with metal points on the end. And they were supposed to be used by men in formations called shiltrons, standing close together and working like kind of hedgehogs, all with their spears over one another's shoulders and pointing out the front. And the idea was that you would march or trot forward and drive any other army just off the field. You know, you'd approach them kind of like a prickly tank and just force them to flee. 
James had acquired these from the continent. They were kind of pioneered by the Swiss and then the French had begun to use them. And James got them from Louis XII, the French king, got a consignment of these things. But in the hands of trained men over level ground, they were effective. But James's men had had no chance to practice. They were just given these unwieldy, nearly 20 foot long wooden shafts with points and told to form up and use them. And when the order was given to advance, they started running down slope towards where the English were. And the, the, water, the ground was slippery. There'd been rain, so the grass was wet and slippery. So what should have been, what was supposed to be this disciplined advance by men shoulder to shoulder in formation became a melee of guys slipping and falling and they've got both hands trying to control these pikes. And so before they even met the English force, they were throwing them away in their frustration and drawing swords and other weapons. So they come down to the bottom of, of the slope and there they encounter the English who've advanced to meet them. And the English soldiers are armed with traditional bills, bill hooks, which are basically massive axes. A great big steel axe head on the end of an eight foot long shaft, a much more practical weapon for an untrained man, basically a, a modified agricultural tool. It's really for use, you know, chopping branches off of trees, but they work really well against flesh and bone. So the Scottish soldiers, armed in the main with, with swords, clash with the English. You've got these much longer bills with, with axes on the end, and it's carnage. It's absolute carnage for the Scottish soldiers. They're just butchered by the English bills. There's English bowmen as well, shooting arrows into the Scottish ranks. And it's, believe it or not, King James IV is fighting at the front of his army right out there, all glamorous and he-man, alpha male, right out there at the forefront of the battle. And he takes an arrow to the face. He's killed. He's shot in the face by an English bowman. Uh, and he falls off of his horse. And it, one thing leads to another, and it's a dreadful route for the Scots. And it's said that just about every noble house in Scotland lost sons because they were all there, everyone had come everyone had answered King James's call to arms so they were all there all the heads and sons of the great families of Scotland senior churchmen because in those days bishops, they would take arms as well, they fell by the score, by the hundred and of course, as is always the case in these medieval battles thousands upon thousands of rank and file you and me, pressed into battle all fell on the battlefield and died these unremembered deaths. And these were the flowers of the forest. These were the flowers of the forest. These anonymous foot soldiers butchered there on the, on the field of Lorden. And Scotland had never experienced a wound like it. In the aftermath of Flodden, it was a world changer for Scotland. While King James was there, while he was king, Scotland was a country on the up. It was outward looking. It was ambitious. It was striking relationships and, and forging a presence on the world stage, on the European stage, to some extent. And then in that moment of the 9th of September, 1513, with the death of the king and the death of so many of the nobility and, of course, the death of so many ordinary foot soldiers, Scotland was filleted, hollowed out by it. And this is why, that's why it was remembered with a lament like the flowers of the forest. His son, uh, James IV's son, was, was just a wee boy. He was crowned, aged a year and a half. James V 
and he is eventually, in due course, becomes the father of Mary, Queen of Scots. But in the immediate aftermath of Flodden, Scotland goes from being a country with a, an ambitious, outward-looking country with a glamorous king on the world stage to being a, a country with a, a baby as its notional king and ruled by regents. I'm always reminded of that bit in, um, in the Iliad, Homer, when Hector's killed. Andromache is, is Hector's wife. Andromache led the lamentations of the women while she held in her hands the head of Hector, her greatest warrior. Husband, you're gone so young from life and leave me in your house a widow. Our son is still but a little fellow, child of ill-fated parents, you and I. How can he grow to manhood? Before that, this city shall be overthrown, for you are gone, you who kept watch over its wives and their little ones. You leave woe unutterable and mourning to your parents, Hector, but in my heart, above all others, bitter anguish shall abide. Your arms were not stretched out to me as you lay dying. You spoke to me no living word that I might have pondered as my tears fell night and day. That's how Andromache mourns the death of Hector. And in, in a similar way, Margaret Tudor and the whole of Scotland laments the loss of James in that way. It's catastrophic. It's an unthinkable tragedy. And it's of profound significance for the British Isles. You know, this is a love letter to the British Isles. And whether or not people are familiar with Flodden, the fact is the events at Flodden had profound significance for the whole country. Because... The Scottish thistle and the English rose were already spliced on account of the fact that James was married to Margaret Tudor. You know, the, the royal households had already come together and the loss of confidence that followed Flodden for the Scots nudged Scotland sort of lost its footing, if you like, in the same way that those soldiers slipped and slid on the, on the wet grass as they tried to come down slope with those pikes. Scotland lost its footing and slipped much, much closer to Union the eventual union with England that wasn't to come right away but those events at Flodden shaped a destiny that gradually began to unfold and of course because the Scottish thistle and the English rose were already spliced it was as everyone knows eventually when Elizabeth I died without an heir it was James VI of Scotland who became James I of England who became the first king of the United Crowns so the early outline of that reality begins to be sketched in the aftermath of Flodden. Flodden broke Scotland's heart. To this day, if you go to places close to where the battle happened, like Coldstream, where the, where the Scottish army crossed into England, the event is still remembered to this day. Selkirk is another place nearby. All these towns have annual summer festivals called Ridings of the Marches, where people come out on horseback and they ride around the borders of the town and the boundaries of the town and they, they reenact as a civic spectacle. In Selk, the, the climax of the common ridings, as they call them, remembers Flodden. Anyone in Selkirk, well, of a certain age, they'll tell you that uh, four score Selkirk men went away to the Battle of Flodden and only one came back. So 80 men went and only one returned and he was called Fletcher. And when he came back to the town in the aftermath, he couldn't speak. He couldn't speak. He was so heartbroken. He couldn't put into words what had happened. But what he did was he, he held up his banner on the end of its staff and he just lowered it to the floor. And that was him symbolising the fall of the Selkirk men. And they reenact this every year and the band plays the Flowers of the Forest. And it's very emotive. It's 
fascinating that something that happened over 500 years ago still echoes and reverberates today, isn't it? It is, and that, and that word, Flodden, you know, many people have heard it. Many people will know the name. I've, I've sometimes even wondered if the people get confused because it does sound a bit like Culloden, and it also sounds a bit like Flanders, you know, the battlefields of the First World War. You know, Flodden is kind of in between the two, Culloden, Flanders, Flodden, but people know that it's a sad word. And yes, it reverberates, it, and it was remembered. It was commemorated in Scotland ever after. In fact, when Mary, Queen of Scots, was crowned in Stirling Castle, she was crowned deliberately on the 9th of September 1543, 30 years to the day since her grandfather, James IV, had died on Flodden Field. So there, there were always attempts to commemorate and to remember. But where people remember Bannockburn as a great victory, Flodden, which happened 199 years later, 199 years later, was seen as having upset all of that. Whatever had been achieved at Bannockburn, that bank account was emptied 199 years later because of what James IV allowed to unfold on Flodden Field. If you go there now, and I urge you to go there, the people of Brankston, a few years ago, they bought their BT red phone box... And they, they turned it into what might well be the world's smallest visitor centre. <laughs> when you when you open it now, or if there certainly used to be, uh, you know, leaflets about the battle that you could take away. And there was a map showing the way in which the two armies, the English and the Scottish, had moved through the landscape and eventually formed up for the battle. You could see this inside the phone box. In that part of, in the borderlands and in Northumberland, where it, where it happened, people still remember it. And there's a there's a little church. Uh, nearby, It's called St Paul's. It's just a little village church. Most of it's Victorian, but part of the stone uh, fabric within the church is older and would have been there at the time of the battle. And in the aftermath, James's body lay in state there for a little while. And, uh, and Henry VIII promised a full honourable funeral for his brother King, but it never happened. And eventually, in a bizarre twist, James's head... <laughs> was separated from his body and his his head, the mummified head of King James IV became a trophy that was passed from hand to hand amongst <laughs> sections of the English nobility uh, before eventually it was given some form of burial in a, in a pauper's grave. So James, his body was never properly buried. But it, the battlefield of Flodden is just one of those places that you can go to in the landscape and, and almost fail. You, you, you could not but be struck by the significance of the place. There's a, on Piper's Hill, which is pretty much where the English army lined up, there's a, a very simple, big granite cross, you know, taller than a man, and it has on it simply to the brave of both nations. And if you stand in the shadow of that cross, you can see Brankston Hill where the Scots were, you know, where that cannonball was found by you and me, and you're pretty much where the English lined up. Another way in which Flodden resonates for me, we talk all the time in history about the impact that certain people had down through history, the impact that certain people made with their presence. Well, James IV is significantly different because James IV affected the destinies of England and Scotland not on account of his presence, but on account of his absence. 
because of the mistakes he made, this vainglorious prince, this unnecessary war that he got himself involved in, and managed to get himself killed fighting in alongside uncounted numbers of his countrymen. Because of that absence of himself and the hole that he tore in the fabric of reality, by his failed efforts at Flodden, he affected the destinies of England and Scotland forever. Was it unusual for the king to be fighting at the front of the army? Um, yes, <laughs> it was certainly unusual for a king to be killed in that way. He was hacking his way, legend has it, that he was fighting his way towards Surrey, the English commander, and that he was within a, a sword's length of Surrey when the bowman shot his arrow and, and felled him. And of course, it's one of those what-ifs, I suppose. Perhaps if King James had managed to kill Surrey, it might have turned the battle in a different direction. It's a what-if sliding doors moment of history. But it was unusual by any standards for a king to have put himself into such a perilous position. But, it, you know, it did happen. You know, famously, Robert Bruce was there fighting hand-to-hand with knights with his battle axe on the first day of the Battle of Bannockburn. James IV's own father was felled during the Battle of Sockyburn. So it, it did happen. But yes, to lose a king in battle was desperately careless on the part of any nation. Do you feel a sadness when you're there? Oh, undoubtedly. But then there's a sadness in all of these places. As I said before, Bannockburn is remembered by Scots as a great victory, but it was also a charnel house of slaughter, you know, for, for English soldiers, of course, but also for, you know, for thousands of Scots fell there. Any of these battlefields that you go to, of which there are hundreds dotted around the countryside, battles of the Wars of the Roses, battles of the War of Three Kingdoms, you know, better known as the English Civil War. You go to the battlefields of the First World War, you know, whether your force notionally won or lost, these places are redolent of sadness. They're places where everything went to the bad place, where the talking stopped, the diplomacy stopped, and once again it became men hacking at other men with swords and axes. I mean, do you remember when we were there, I interviewed a a military strategist who had trained at Sandhurst, and he speculated that what the foot soldiers witnessed and indeed took part in at Flodden would have been worse than anything that anyone saw at the Somme or at Passchendaele in the First World War. That face-to-face and men hacking at one another with with swords and axes, what those men would have done and possibly survived and, and, and remembered having committed for the rest of their days would have suffered what we would categorise as post-traumatic stress disorder and would have, if they, if they survived to go back to their ordinary lives, you know, they would have been marked and damaged by it ever after. And so you go to a place like Brankston or Florden and you look down into this beautiful rolling countryside, this this soft, grassy valley, and it's lovely. But then, if you remember what happened there, then at the same time, it's a place of sadness. It was only one day, just one day out out of the thousands, out of the millions of days, but nonetheless, 9th of September, 1513, in that place was hell, a hell on earth. And something of it, some of the smoke of it, lingers there, in the air to this day.
Shipbuilders completing work on a vessel that would sail out of the 16th century and into history. 70 feet long, 20 feet wide and weighing around 150 tonnes, the flagship of a squadron of five ships and the only one to return. Its captain, Francis Drake, made Queen Elizabeth I rich and he was knighted for his trouble. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fatbelly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 